0: A new friend, and I'm going to introduce this person to you here in a little bit. His name is Josh Roberts, and uh, he is a pastor at our mother church. Some of you may not know that we have a mother church, a church planted us out of Billings called Harvest, uh, many, many, many years ago, and we are grateful for that. So I'm always, uh, always excited when one of their pastors comes up and shares with us, and as a part of our team, we like to stay connected to that. Uh, more is better. So, um, Josh, uh, you'll find out pretty quickly. Uh, you can tell he ain't from around here. Uh, but, these parts, um, yeah. I ain't from these parts. Uh, yeah, and um, somewhere southeast of Billings, it sounds like to yeah. me. Uh, he'll probably tell yeah. us more about that, I'm sure. But would you give Josh a really warm journey welcome, please? Thanks. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, so now I'm, I'm from Georgia. Uh, that's where this... Uh, draw is from, uh, there are no there are no um, subtitles, sorry about that, so I'll try to talk slow for you all. Um, so I'm now in Billings, you know, the pretty part of Montana. <laughs> I had to come over here to Bozeman, it, it's okay, you know. <laughs> so I'm really nervous, that's no, just the honest truth, I'm going to be real honest with you, very very nervous. Uh, there's a couple reasons, I've kind of thought through it, and here's the first one. I really want to impress you guys, which is a, kind of an issue because I'm supposed to be preaching the Bible, but I want you to walk away from this thing liking me. So I just want to acknowledge that, and I'm working on that. In fact, I've been working on it so much that when, um, when Brandon uh, sent me an email asking if I'd teach a couple months ago, I was like, oh, I'd love to teach in Bozeman, but you guys are healthy. And uh, so I, I went on a diet for two months. I'm down 20 pounds, boys and girls. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That's all for you, Bozeman, all right so uh, yeah, that piece now the other, the other thing, and uh, this is a, another reason I'm pretty nervous, um, in all sincerity, I sincerely, sincerely want this to be worth your time, like uh, if you're a Christian, I really want you to walk out of here, pretty confident in who God is and therefore who you are and what He has planned for you, and really just like for this to be some time well spent for you, and if you're not a Christian actually feel some pressure to do a pretty good job representing how good our God is and why you should like him and all those kind of things. And so feel that pressure. And then the third piece is that based on the second one, I can't do much. Like I don't, I don't have very much to offer you. Uh, in fact, in my mind, and I mean this, I am really probably only one bad decision away from being in jail rather than on this stage. And so you laugh, but so here's, here's, a, here's an example of that. Uh, I'm 36. My, I've been married now 12 years. I got a wife, three kiddos. I got an eight-year-old boy. Uh, his name's Briggs. He's awesome, but he likes to stick his fingers in his creases and sniffle. them. It's just one of his neat little things that he does. I got Amelia. She's five, and she's just like a little ball of defiance. She's got really thick thighs, and she's got crazy troll hair, and she's the one who'll wake you up in the middle of the night and be like, hey, daddy, let's play, you know, that one. And then I got Sophie, and she's three, and she's perfect. Um, but she's adopted, so she has better genetics, is kind of... <laughs> Um, and so, uh, uh so I've been a pastor for 15 years, uh, and 36, and so started as a 21-year-old, and now, mind you, as a 21-year-old, your frontal lobe's not fully developed, so I couldn't really help some of the decisions I made. I did eventually lose that job, but I kept it longer than I thought I would, so I thought that's pretty neat. Um, here's kind of how, how that went for me, um. So one of the things when you're a 21-year-old kid who's excited about Jesus and the gospel and uh, want more kids to hear about it, you basically become a dog and pony show and figure out whatever you need to do to perform for them, get them in the room, all that kind of stuff. And So I had this really great idea uh, once that um, we would make these videos of us kidnapping kids and taping them to chairs with duct tape and then showing those videos on Wednesday nights. So that's what we used to do. And so the way that it worked is uh, afternoon students would hang out at church and we would, you know, connect with a, a new family in town. And be Like, hey, do you mind if we kidnap your kid and videotape it? He's never been to church. So we're just going to show it on Wednesday nights and we'll bleep out anything if he says anything wrong, you know, that kind of stuff. We, we'll, we'll protect you. And uh, some most parents were like, yeah, sure, that'd be funny. Make sure I see the video. And so we would, um, literally, we would send kids in, like high school kids, they'd go and uh, kidnap these little uh 12 year olds and tape them to a chair and videotape it. And yep, I think I've lost most of you already and no credibility left. It gets worse. Okay. So see how far we can go with this. And so tape them to the chair, videotape it. And uh, that's just how it went down. Did this several times, always new kids. And there's this one particular time. And again, I just want you to know, I was the adult. I just drove the car. I didn't go in those houses. That's for, you know, I wouldn't do that. And so there was this one time I was uh, driving a 15 passenger van with uh, a few of the kids with me. And we um, had this new family in town. I had an eighth grader, his name was Drew, a sixth grader, his name was Jordy, they'd never been to church, but I got to know him from eating lunch at school, and I said to eighth grader Drew, hey, I think it'd be really fun if we could come to your house today and kidnap your brother and videotape it and show it on to tonight. And he's like, that sounds like a great idea. And so Jordy was a sixth grader, and he I mean, he probably weighed 30 pounds. I mean, he was a tiny little kid. So we're like, this is going to be easy. You know, like we're going to tie him up like one of those little sheep, you know, like that and be like eight, you know, that kind of deal. And so uh, I can remember I pulled up in the driveway, Jordy's house, Drew had planned on leaving the the door unlocked, really nice of him. And they ran in with a video camera and they went to get him. And I, I again, I stayed in the car because I'm an adult and I sat there, listened to Reba McIntyre and just waited. Uh, um, waited a few minutes, nothing. It's like, wow, this is taking a little longer than usual. Waited a few more minutes. And then the, the, the boys, about four or five of them came back out and they didn't have Jordy with them. And I frankly was very disappointed in them. And I was like, guys, what's going on? And they're like, he's nimble and quick. And I'm like, guess I to think about that for a 40 pound sixth grader. And so I was like, boys, we're not going to have a video for Wednesday night. You got to go back in there and finish the drill, right? And they're like, but he locked himself in a closet. I'm like, there's not that many closets with locks on the inside. I'm sure he's just holding it tight. Just go open it and get him. And so they went back in and um, uh, they finally get in and they go and they, they, he's holding the door shut. So they finally pull the door open to grab him. And they're in ski mask, the whole deal, right? And Jordy is sitting there with a loaded shotgun. See, I didn't think it either. You know, I... Yeah, terrible, right? Yeah. So that was the last time we did that. And uh, <laughs> so um, I've grown up a little bit since then got some gray hair and try to make wiser decisions. But that's just the reality, guys. I really have nothing personally I can offer you um, other than some poor life decisions. And so um, what I'm going to try to offer you instead is, here's what it says in Isaiah 55. It says that um, when God's word is presented, it never returns void. I sincerely believe that. I really believe that, and so what we're going to hope happens here, and what I'm going to beg the Lord to do is that he's going to keep his promises. I think he will, and we're going to ask that he would just increase. His word would penetrate our hearts and change us, and that's what we'd get uh, this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into some really good material. Um, Jesus, you really are gracious to us. Um, Sincerely, the fact that we are sitting and living and breathing today is just in my mind, God, just immeasurably more than I deserve. And so, thanks for your grace. Jesus, you actually want to change people's lives. You want to transform their hearts. You want to help them realize how much you love them, and what kind of plans you have for them. And you want to kind of release them to go participate in restoring uh, this earth the way that you intended it for it to be restored to. And so, God, gotta be really, really nice if you'd use this time to help us become uh, more like you. I gather there's some folks in this room who... Um, frankly, don't believe you exist. And uh, that's fair, Lord. Uh, it is a broken, messy world, and sometimes you seem really distant. So, God, I'm just gonna ask you to do it all you can do, which is make yourself known. Uh, I, gotta, I, I don't feel the pressure to convince folks of anything, because I can't. I don't feel the pressure to fix anyone, because I can't, can't even fix myself. And so, Jesus, we're, we're kind of relying on you this morning. Uh, if you don't do anything, uh, then uh, this was all for naught. And so we just would ask that you would do that, that uh, you would have your way. Pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so here's the good news. Uh, the good news is, I've uh, been a Christian for uh, quite some time, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Or if you don't believe in God, for all of you, whatever uh, part of the spectrum you're on, uh, this is still really valuable for you. And here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, the issue between what happens when God seems really far away. Now, if you're a Christian— Either you're experiencing that right now, experienced in the past, and you will probably experience it again in the future. So, how do we respond when God seems absent or far away? No, if you're not a Christian, God's just far away for you. That's not a shot at you. It's just, it's just the reality is either just because He doesn't exist to you, It doesn't matter to you, you don't think He's a good and gracious God, don't want to be in a relationship with Him. And so, for all of us, kind of either, yep, God is either currently far away from us or probably will feel that way sometime. In our future. So we're going to try to figure out. The good news is no matter where you're at on the journey. Whether you, God's far from you because you've turned your back on him. Or because of sin in your life. Or you're not really sure why. You're trying to do all the right things and yet he still seems far. The good news is for all of us it's kind of still the same uh, Formula, which is a dangerous thing to say because I much in Christianity is formulaic. But there's some really cool scripture that kind of helps us identify what to do when God seems far and how to get close to him. So we're gonna be in Psalm 42 today. And so the thing, really cool thing about uh, the Psalms is they're really just prayers of praise, of anguish and all sorts of different things. And this one particularly in Psalm 42 is really a, a prayer of desperation of a guy who... Uh, Really thirsts for God but can't get Him. So before we get there, I want to talk briefly about why this happens. If you're a Christian or non-Christian, why does God sometimes seem far? And I used to be a math teacher, so I get to use a board today, which I'm excited about. So uh, if we're thinking about Scripture, this Bible, uh, Genesis to Revelation, written over 15 to 1600 years, 66 books in all. So big old book. Uh, it actually has this kind of this theme, what we call the meta-narrative running throughout it. And it's, a, it's actually one major story leveraging lots of other stories to compile it. And so if we're talking about the story of the Bible or our story, here's the kind of the components that I would mention. The first one is this, right? Creation. Okay. By that, I just mean there was nothing and then there was something. Now, Christian, you're like, yep, that's what the Bible says. In the beginning, there was, uh, in the beginning it was God. Both very comforting and very scary, that, that, those statements that there was always a God. If you're not a Christian, all I mean is, we all admit that there is something now. You're in the room, we got here, we exist, and there was a moment we didn't exist. And uh, there was a time when there was... Maybe no world and then there was a world and we're not sure exactly how that happens and maybe we think, oh, a couple of atoms banged together and that's what happened there. And it's like, well, if that's the case, there's still, those atoms were created from nothing. So nothing became something. And I just would argue, yep, that's uh, creation. So there was nothing and then there was something. And here's the really neat thing about what scripture tells us. When there became something, when we were created, it actually meant there was a creator and then now we become the creation. And so we got to ask the question, why in the world would a creator make creation? Right? Isn't that crazy? I mean, I, I, like an intelligent designer, completely wise. Why in the world would he even create us or put us in this mess? Right? Like, how in the world did all that happen? And it's like, well, the more I think about it, I was like, well, I don't think he did it because he was bored. He could have got one of those Nintendo Next things if he was really bored and could have played some video games, right? I mean, uh, I mean, he can create whatever he wants to. So I don't think it's because he's bored. I think it's because he's mean. He doesn't have to create anyone. And it's the only possible solution I can come up with is he actually created creation because he wanted to connect and be with creation, which is pretty profound, that the creator of the universe spoke things into existence, including us, for the sole purpose of actually being connected to us. And so what it tells us in Genesis 3 is that uh, Adam and Eve were created, God spoke them into existence, doesn't pretty neat things, and it says in Genesis 3, and then God walked in the garden in the cool of the night. This is so profound. Literally, Adam and Eve were there, and so was God, and they were hanging out together. And everything was perfect. And then, part two, the fall. You know, for some of you, this is like, yep, know this story. This is the fruit. Adam and Eve eat it. Some of you, this is a big hang up for you. Like how in the world would God, why in the world would he create a bunch of fruit and then tell us we couldn't eat it? That seems silly, right? And so what we know is God created everything to be in relationship with us. And the only thing is God was perfect. We weren't perfect. And therefore, uh, in order for us to stay connected, we had to live in his perfection. And the minute that Adam and Eve chose their own path over God, what we call that a sin and sin disconnected Adam and Eve from God. So this fog, we're creating in God's image. And then God said, hey, you can do whatever you want to. Just don't eat from that one tree. The minute they did, essentially what they did is they stuck their middle finger up at the creator of the universe and say, said, hey, we understand you have a plan, but we like our plan better. And in that moment, they disconnected themselves from God. And so when we say God seems absent, the reality is he is absent. Because the way that he intended this world to be and in its perfection we messed it up. So, what we know about this is so awesome. In the beginning, it said that Adam and Eve were naked, or I'm from Georgia, naked, N E K K I D, naked and felt no shame. We don't know each other well, so I'm going to, this is where I test the lines to see how, how, we can get, how far we can get. So, so funny, like they were naked and felt no shame. That meant, I mean, <laughs> they did like calisthenics and jumping jacks and didn't feel uncomfortable at all about it. That's crazy, right? And then all of a sudden they eat from this fruit, their eyes are open, they look down and they realize they're naked and they felt shame. So they hid. In fact, God shows up in the garden and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? That's not because God didn't know where they were. It's because Adam and Eve didn't know where they were, right? And so they go, oh gosh, everything was perfect. And now we feel so far from God and we've lived in that cycle for the last several thousand years. Now, Here's a really interesting thing here. A lot of people will use this as saying, yep, see, you're not satisfied. God seems far. They would use this as what we'd call an anti-apologetic. An apologetic just literally is a explanation or a reason for the belief and understanding of who God is. So an anti-apologetic would be, yep, see, if God is so loving and gracious, then why in the world does he seem so far from you? And if Jesus says he's coming to give you a life and a life to its fullest, then why in the world do you not feel a full life? The, 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 the response would then be, well, it must be because God must not be loving and he must not actually want you to have a full life or he must not be real. But the neat thing is, is I would argue the other side of this. This lack of satisfaction and fulfillment we walk in doesn't disprove God. It actually proves our need and our longing for him. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. It's gonna be up here on the screens. If, I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So, hey, God seems far. You feel unsatisfied? Yeah, here's why. Because we fell and we're disconnected. But that's not the end of the story. There's actually another really great part of it this is redemption, and this is all about we can't fix ourselves, right? Religion is man's attempt to either get to God or become God, and we've all tried that. We've all tried to check the list, do the right things, and it's never worked out well for us, right? And so Christianity is not man's attempt to get to God. It's actually God's perfect attempt to reunite with man through Jesus, and so there's this piece where, yep, the wages of our sin, of our fall is death, and yet Jesus wants to come and redeem us. This is really good news. So the story of the gospel is you were created. We failed to the point where we couldn't fix ourselves and therefore needed a savior, which is the whole purpose of Jesus. Now, if you've prayed the prayer and said, dear Jesus, come into my life and raised your hand in the service, whatever that is, and you're still here after that, right? So it can't be that he just came to redeem us. There's gotta be a greater picture of this. He didn't just come to save us. There's was actually a fourth part of the gospel. And this is what the New Testament talks so much about is restoration, right? Yep, we were created in God's image. We fell, God redeemed us, but not just to save us, but actually to give us real purpose again. To actually come and participate in his kingdom or God's agenda, which Jesus says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, this is the way it's supposed to be. We messed it up and now we're in the process of restoring it and we get to participate in that. Now, there's one last piece to this restoration. It's actually this word, consummation. There will be a day, and I appreciate that Alex talked about this so well. The, th- things are not yet the way that they will be one day, right? They're not there yet, yet they will be there one day. So, yep, created in God's image, we fell. God redeemed us. He now is allowing us to participate in his restoration of his kingdom. And one day, one day, everything will be made perfect, There'll be no more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow. And yet, until we get to this day, we live in this realm of God sometimes feeling distant to us. So sometimes maybe it is because you turned your back on Him, others you might be trying really hard to pursue God, and yet He still seems far. I'd argue that's what the psalmist in Psalm 42 is struggling with. And so I just want to read with you what I would argue is a pretty neat little formula to how do you respond to a God who seems far away. Christian, it's really good for you. If not, some really good steps. So here goes. Psalm 42, verse one. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when can I go and meet with God? Really neat here. He's kind of giving this illustration of a deer panting for water like he's thirsty. Now here's the unique thing about thirst. Thirst only happens for living things. You don't water plastic plants, right? Buy nature, to thirst for something means that you are living and longing for something that you don't currently have. See, we were created in God's image. We were made living and yet we then fell and got disconnected from God and yet still long to be close to him. So the first thing that happens for the psalmist, Jesus basically says, look, I just need to acknowledge it. You're far from me, God. And yet, this is really neat because you're indicating to me that I'm still alive and I'm still longing for something. The very thing that, uh, that I can't find satisfaction in must mean that it won't be found in this world, but in a different one. And so the very first thing that happens for them is this. And what should happen for us? When we find ourselves far from God, we have to acknowledge what is going on. So let's acknowledge it. Let's embrace the truth. Truth is never the problem so what's going on it's weird to talk about because it seems weird to talk about God being far away right it's kind of scary like okay does that mean God's not real the worst part is when God seems really far from you and yet you want your friends to love God and so it's hard for you to be honest about it this is what the psalmist is struggling with verse three my tears have been my food day and night this is real pain While people say to me all day long, where is your God? But this isn't someone who is just pretending like life's not hard. Look, sometimes life is hard. Sometimes God seems far away. Sometimes it's because of some decisions we made. Sometimes it's because of decisions other people made. But there's not a single part of this. God is not afraid of truth. All truth belongs to God. God. Right, And so the very first thing this guy does is just get some self-awareness and acknowledges what's going on for him. So he acknowledges the what. Verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among, among the festive throng. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, man, there was a time that I felt really close to God. Ever had those moments that are different than where you are right now? God, you used to seem so close. Like I would pray and you would actually respond and I would see you at work in that response. And yet now you seem so far away. And then he does this, verse five, or 42, five. Why my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? First, we're far from God, let's just acknowledge it. Hey, what's going on? We feel far from God. God, you don't seem real. You definitely don't seem loving. And then the next one is you ask is why? Particularly this why is not about your circumstances. It's more about your feelings. Hey, self, why am I so downcast? So not just God, you seem far, but now let's think about what we feel. Okay, God seems far away. God, why do you feel so far away? Why am I so downcast? Like, what is it in me that's creating this? And a couple things will come up for you. One will be like, oh man, my marriage is rough. And my value is based on how well my marriage was. Or boy, my kids are really disobedient and I'm so worried about their future. And what comes up is like, gosh, I have some control issues. And the reason I'm downcast is because I am not confident in their future and I can't control it, right? And then you see what happens next. Verse six, put your hope in God for I will yet praise Him, my savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from land of the Jordan, the heights of the Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls the deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and break, breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So watch what happens next. He goes, why do I feel this? And this is what ends up happening when you say why. Next thing you see here is this Where? So why am I downcast? And what, you say, what it says here is it says, put your hope in God. And so what it's actually saying, here, what's happening here is when I realize that I'm downcast, when I realize that God seems far away and I'm wrestling through, why do I feel so downcast? It's almost always because I have put my hope in the wrong things. So first ask what's going on, okay? Why do you feel that? And then what this question should lead to is where have you put your hope? You put it in the things of this earth? Is it bad news about the doctor? Have you put your hope in birth to death? Like just these 80 years, 70 years you get in this planet? So where are you putting your hope? Have you put it in uh, your resume? Your job? Oh God, I, I feel so downcast because things aren't going well for me at work. Well, why do I feel so downcast? Well, because things aren't going well for me at work. My boss doesn't like me and I don't know that I'm gonna keep my job. Oh goodness, where have I put my hope? Huh, I put my hope in my own ability to provide. And when you ask that last question, where have I put my hope? It should lead to the final question, which is, who? Because this is the reality. You don't put your hopes in things, you put it in people. Because when I think about, where did I put my hope? Oh, I'm so worried about my future. What I'm actually putting my hope in, or lack of hope in, is my own ability to take care of myself, or my family to do that. And so what's happening for the psalmist is he's going, yep, things are hard. I have, I have lost sight of what God is doing. I am struggling with that. And therefore, I have realized that I've put my hope in things other than God. And therefore, the question ends with, who? This is our love. As the psalmist re, re, uh, wrestles through it, he eventually gets to the point where you find him preaching to himself. Which is part of the process. As you're working through this. Oh, I've got to remind myself of this. And so... He says, put your hope in God. Now, here's the abridged version, one more round, because the psalmist wants to make sure you get it. Starting in verse seven, we're gonna see the exact same thing happen again. So, I'm sorry, start, starting in verse nine. Verse nine verse one, uh, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taught me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? So what's going on for this guy? Just acknowledging that God seems really far away. Really far away. Then he says, why? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Okay, what's going on? And then he says, well, I must have put my hope in the wrong place. And you put it in the right place? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, and my God. Love that piece there you see at the end. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, my Savior, and my God. So here's what the psalmist is saying. Well, I can put my hope in myself, but that hasn't worked out well for me. In fact, the very things I try to do, I, I don't do, right? The very things that my aspirations, I can't do the right thing. When I wanna do the right thing, I can't do it. In fact, I can't even fix myself. Like no matter how hard I try, I can't fix me. So why in the world would I continue to put hope in something I can not do? Like I can't fix me. And I can put hope in another person. That doesn't mean they're not gonna fail me. And it definitely doesn't mean I'm not gonna fail them. And if I do fail them, I don't know that they'll forgive me. And even if they do forgive me, they can't sustain me. So what this psalmist is saying is he's saying, man, I'm gonna put my hope in, the, in my savior, remember? Because I was created in God's image. I fell. God redeemed me. And now gives me an opportunity to participate in his kingdom from here for all eternity. See, I really like this because it actually answers the question to me about the fruit in the garden. Like, come on, God, really? A piece of fruit in the garden? You knew they were gonna eat it. Doesn't that seem a little silly of you? Well, the point was never the fruit. Just like the Ten Commandments. Come on, God, do you really think I'm going to follow all ten? Is that really the goal? Nope, the point wasn't getting us to behave. In fact, both of them, the point was always the proof how incapable we were to being connected to God on our own. The point of the fruit, the point of the Ten Commandments, all was about pointing to a God who could save us. The point of the fruit was to show you that we needed a Savior. In fact, in Genesis 3, God shows up and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? They say, uh... We realized we were naked and ashamed, so we hid because we were afraid. And then God gives us a couple of pictures and he says, hey, there's gonna be some consequences for this. First one is this. Uh, You're gonna be pain in childbirth. Adam, you're gonna have to work really hard, but it's gonna be okay. Then we see what's called the proto-evangelium. It's the first picture of uh, Jesus showing up in the scriptures. And he says, hey, there's gonna come a day. Through your seed is gonna come the Savior because you have fallen and he redeemed you. And What the psalmist is saying is, God, I'm going to put my hope in you, my Savior. Here's what else I really, really like about this passage. This isn't the only time in Scripture where someone says they're thirsty. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus enters this planet as a human. Such a crazy miracle to me that God put on a body to come and live amongst us and walk with us and show us how much he loved us and then show us uh, how much uh, that he was willing to sacrifice on our behalf and dies for us, right? When he's put on the cross, he is naked and people are making fun of him and spitting on him and gambling for his clothes. In the middle of that anguish, what he says? He says, I thirst. He knows what it's like to thirst. So if you're far from God, he's upset with you. He actually knows what it's like to be far from God. Because then his next statement is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally, the God of the universe turned his back on his own son, Jesus, so that Jesus could be the payment for our sin. God literally murders his own son. And so Jesus says, I am thirsty. Then he thinks, God, you have left me. You are, I am thirsty and you feel really far from me. Then we see Jesus say a couple different things. Father, in my hand, I commend my spirit, meaning he's about to die. But he says one other really, really <laughs> incredible statement. He says, it is finished. The word means to tell It's a Greek word that literally means to be paid in full. So like if you're paying for a, Mortgage. After you pay your last payment 2,000 years ago, what would have happened is the bank would have sent you back a sealed stamp that would have said that word to tell us that, which literally meant all debts are paid. So, what we see is in the creation, God created us in His image and His likeness. And the Bible says the wages of our sin, meaning we stuck our middle finger up at God, we like our plan better, the wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus our Lord. And He says, it's finished made all things new I've paid every price you can put your hope in me you can call me savior because if I said it's going to be done it's going to be done and it's done so what I'd challenge you with if you're a Christian is where's your hope is it in temporal things or is it in a God who literally has proven that he's paid the price for your sin so I'm going to give you a second just to kind of sit still before God and ask him that God where's my hope if he's far, tell him that. Walk through this. God, here's what's going on. Here's why. Oh, yep. Here's who I've put my trust in. Here's who i put my hope in. And God, I really want to put it in you. Now, if you're not a Christian, uh, there's something really neat about the Lord. He really loves you. So much he did this. All very true. Loves you. Loves you so much he died for you. And went so desperately. So desperately, in fact, that he was nailed to a cross to be reunited with you and redeem you and welcome you into his family. And so just a second. So let's just sit still for a second. Ask God. Tell God, hey, I think you might be doing something in my life. Tell him, God, you've always seemed distant. I'd like to believe this. Just tell him those things. In about a minute, I'll just jump in and interrupt and give you some words that you can talk to God about. And Literally, he'll redeem you right here in this moment. Change you. Give you a purpose for now. And I guarantee a future with him for all eternity. And so I'm just going to do that. Let's just sit for a second. Talk to God. Well, the Bible tells us that the wage uh, for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. And so we're all kind of in the same category. If you're a Christian, um, yep, we're here. If you're not, here's kind of what we're looking at. We're looking at a life where we can't do the very things we're trying to do, and it's just disconnected us from God. The Bible then tells us that the wages of that sin is actual death. And I'm not going to try to convince you of anything because I just would think that you probably recognize that, that something's amiss, for you that what you long for versus the reality that you live in they're they're separate and I think for the first time you're like oh yeah it makes sense to me that they're separate because I am disconnected from the creator of the universe and the same passage wages of sin is death but the gift of God and it is just that it's a gift you can't earn it can't do anything other than just to receive it the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus and so what the Bible tells us, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, acknowledges that he's in charge and acknowledges that he's sa- yeah, your savior, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved, meaning Jesus in this moment will redeem you. I just want to give you a couple words you can say to God. And so if that's you, first time you're like, yep, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to become a Christian. I want to be in a relationship with you. Here's what you tell him. Just tell him that you know that uh, you've chosen your own plan over God. So you can tell it to him right now in your head. I just acknowledge that you choosing your own plan is just sin, missing the mark. Then you can just acknowledge that you recognize that sin has disconnected you from God and therefore life. Then you can just tell him, man, he loves you and he's listening, that you don't want to be disconnected from that anymore, that you want to be with him. And then you can tell him that you believe Jesus is the way that makes it possible for you to be with God. Just acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you can't fix yourself. And just acknowledge that Jesus is perfect and he's God and he can fix you and he wants to. Just ask him, he will. That'll be a really good time for you just to talk to God and say, hey, thanks. Thanks for redeeming me, thanks for giving me purpose those things. Thanks for giving me hope. I uh, time. Thanks for giving me an, an eternal future with you. I can also say some of this is confusing to you and just acknowledge that you'd like to get some more information. Hey God, I want to do this right. I don't know how. You can talk to him about those things. What I don't want you to miss in this moment is that the God of the universe hears you and loves you sent his son to die for you because he genuinely wants to be in a relationship with you. And just now you began that process that gives you an eternal relationship with God. And frankly, as the guy stand on stage, I'm just selfish and would love to celebrate that with you. And so uh, the folks around, their eyes are closed. They're kind of taking a moment for themselves. But if that's you, if you're in this room, I'm not going to bring you up front. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to point you out. But if you, if you just had that conversation with God, uh, would you just Toss up your hand, look at me for a second. I just wanna say, good job, way to go. I see you, sir, I see you, ma'am, good job. Way to go, I see you, back there. I see you, good job. Way to go, that's a big leap, a big leap. Best one you ever make, though. Anybody else? Anybody else? Oh, Lord, um, four or so folks whose hands went up, like I don't, I don't know their names, but I know that you do. You know their names, you know their story, and it matters immeasurably to you. And Lord, you just, you just embrace them. You love them and you redeemed them. And so, God, I pray that they just walk in the confidence of knowing that they are loved by you and that you have a plan for them. Still amazed, God, that you love us and save us. Give us a hope and a future and a purpose and an eternity with you. Really, really thankful for you, Lord, and your willingness to love these people. Really proud of these folks for trusting you. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.